Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 3, Jesus' genealogy. Ready to study the Bible? Yes. That's what we do. Qualify and codify everything in the scriptures. It's possible to have a great worship service and do all the, the steps, I guess you could say, of what it means to have a Christian worship service and for it really to add up to nothing if we don't have the scripture. Scripture qualifies and codifies everything. It has to be lined up that way. You can't skip it. And worship is great, and um, nothing wrong with an entire service of worship. But, but again, how do we know who we're worshiping if we're not studying? You hear what I'm saying? I mean, you can't just do nothing but solid, and there's a lot of trends that way, and it's a mistake. It really is. So, and, and not to speak against anyone particular, but you've got a worship leader, for instance, who's, who is a great worship leader, incredible musician, and a heart to God. I'm not taking anything away from the person. But then you hear him speak on, on other occasions about, and you hear what's really in his heart about his theology, and you're starting to think, uh-oh. He's got the theology of about a fourth grader. And he's leading hundreds of thousands of our young people. That, guys, is a recipe for disaster. And um, again, uh, what do we do? We, we get him into discipleship. It's, it's, again, the Bible's perspective is you don't get influence or you shouldn't give influence to anyone who's not also mature. And, um, and I know what you're thinking. We let you up there, Pastor Bill. But um, <laughs> I caught you on that one. And I'm wondering the same thing myself <laughs> at times. So just have to be careful. Like I said, qualified, codified by the scriptures. And so we're going to be looking at some intense stuff today. I hope you had your coffee. And um, double shot. Because um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. We're going to be in the genealogy of Jesus. Part of the Bible you don't mostly read. Because you cannot pronounce the names and they don't really mean anything to you. You're not Jewish. You don't have a background in genealogies. And so these genealogies were mattered to the Jews. They mattered to, of course, Jesus and his ancestors. And, and we're going to be seeing why, at least to a certain degree, they need to matter to you. Of course, it matters who Jesus is, and that's the portion or the purpose of the writing of this genealogy. Luke was, of course, not a, a, a Jew himself. You know, yes, they, they delved in genealogy. Anybody have, ever ran down their genealogy here? You ever, ever run it down? You ran it down to how far? How far back? I went back all the way to Europe in the 1500s. And what did you find out? No surprises? <laughs> did they send you any money? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so, you know... See, that's why I'm not doing it. And the, you know, the buccal swab where they find out you're from, I don't know, from deepest, darkest England or something, you know. And um, Yeah, I can tell you what ours is. Ours is you go back 100 years, and there were a bunch of rednecks, illiterate, living in East Texas. <laughs> there you go. That's what we were. That's our family tree. So genealogies anymore are kind of purely recreational because, like I said, they're not sending you money. Um, even if you can prove you're related to the queen in England, they don't care, you know, and... Um, but uh, recreational for us, it was not true for the Jews. It was definitely not a recreational thing. It was a very serious thing. Because in order to prove that they had ownership in a very significant chunk of land there in the Middle East that we're still, that's still in the news today and will continue to be in the news, I guarantee you, uh, in order to prove that they had airship to that, they had to have a genealogy that traced themselves back to the original ancestors when they crossed the Jordan River and God gave them that land. Every piece of ground you put your foot on, he tells Joshua, I have already given to you. And they were not allowed to sell that land. They were not able to pass it around between their tribes. If I sold it to you and you were of another tribe, you basically only could lease it from me because at the end of a 49-year period, that 50th year, it came back to me. I couldn't even transfer names. 
And so, so names, and genealogical names in particular, are very important to them. Even more important, not only being a Jew and with reference to the promised land, but if you held a certain position within a tribe inside there, in particular, like if you were a priest, you had to be able to have a genealogy to prove that. You couldn't just say, well, I've got a theological degree, I want to be a priest. Mm-mm. You had to show that you trace back all the way back to Aaron, who was a son of Levi. And then in addition, if you wanted to be king, you had to trace your lineage back to a particular man by the name of David. So we're going to be looking at the genealogy of the ultimate king. His name is Jesus. He's come to rule not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles and the whole world. And uh, we're going to see his genealogy. He's got two of them. And like I said, it's going to be tedious somewhat because, like I said, these are names that you don't know, some of them. And we're going to try just to stick to some here in the book of Luke, and then we're going to refer to other ones here in Matthew. And um, hopefully it's going to make sense to you. But I hope you got your seatbelts on because we're going to be running. It's kind of like drinking water out of, uh, out of a fire hydrant kind of thing. We fired at you. We got a lot of stuff going on. We got a baptism to get done today and, and lots of other things. So, so uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 23 and 25, and then we're going to skip, skip down several places. Names that you're going to know to begin, it says, verse 23, when he began, that is Jesus, his ministry, Jesus himself, was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Helsi, the son of Nagai. Aren't you glad I'm not reading all of it? <laughs> Verse 31, just again, picking up names that you'll know and they're going to matter in our study here. Uh, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of uh, Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. That's not just any David. That's David, the son of Jesse, as you'll look at the next verse, who, is, who was the first uh, anointed of king, king of Israel. Not the first, but he was the first uh, presented by God at least. Skip, skipping down to verse 34. The son of Jacob. So we back in Jewish history now, Jacob is a name. Jacob matters. His name was changed to Israel. The son of Jacob, the son of who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, who was the son of Terah, who was the son of Nahor. Now, uh, verse 38, here's the very end of the genealogy, which back, we're back on all the way up to the beginning of time, right? The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so you had this genealogy presented to you, to you here by Luke, tracing Jesus' lineage all the way from Jesus, as it says there supposedly through Joseph, we're going to get to that all the way back to Adam, and it, it betrays his purpose, which is to demonstrate that Jesus was, albeit God, he was also completely man. And that's Luke's purpose, the purpose of writing this whole book, the reason why he includes the genealogy here and traces it back to Adam. We're going to be comparing, as I said, and contrasting Jesus' two genealogies, and, and, and just to address the whole issue of why does he have two genealogies, and people automatically say, see, there's a contradiction. He, he has two genealogies, one in Luke and one in Matthew, and they don't agree, and there's a good reason for that. You want to know why? For the same reason that you have two genealogies that don't agree. If you have two genealogies that do agree, that means that your ancestors were marrying cousins and stuff. <laughs> you got a mom, right? And you got a dad. And those two genealogies don't cross, hopefully, for way back there. Or are you going to come up with three eyes or whatever? All right, so he had a mom and dad. And that's not that big of a deal. He had a legal, at least a legal father. Legally, Joseph was his father. He was not his biological father, of course. Mary was his biological mother. Uh, the genealogy of Luke is Mary's genealogy, even though you notice her name isn't in here. Because typically you didn't name women. Sorry, ladies, I don't know. He left it out. Uh, uh, but it, his, her dad was named Eli. And that was not Joseph's dad, even though it does say it there. But we're going to see why it says it there. So, so we're going to back up for a second and con consider just these, these genealogies in macro, if you will. And then we're going to get down to the microscopic here 
and see some, I think, some really amazing things. So, so hold on, like I said, take your coffee and let's get moving here. So there's two genealogies, and not only just because he has two parents, but also because there's two purposes of the writers who write these books, Matthew and Luke, and their genealogies. Luke, as I said, wrote already, I told you, he, he wrote with the intent to prove that Jesus was indeed a man at the same time being fully God. How could he be not anything less than a man and die for us? How could he die for a man unless he is a man? How could he bleed unless he has the blood of a man, right? How could he sacrifice a body? We're going to be observing the elements here of the Lord's Supper representing his literal body and literal blood that he sacrificed for us. And it's our, our only way to God and the fact that he covered our sins with his blood. And so... Uh, Luke traces him back all the way to Adam. His is an ascending genealogy. Starting with Jesus, it ascends back to Adam. Uh, Matthew is the opposite. His is a descending genealogy. He starts with an ancestor, Abraham in particular, and descends back to him. Why does he do it that way? Because Matthew has a different purpose. Luke writes to prove that he's a man. Matthew writes to Jews, being himself a Jew, to prove that Jesus has heirship to the throne. Messiah. Extremely important. So I notice Luke here, chapter 3, doesn't get to the genealogy until chapter 3 because he's writing for different purposes and he's bringing the genealogy at a likely place. Matthew starts his whole book with genealogy because here's the way it works for Jews. Like I said, genealogy is everything for them. By the way, they lost everything in AD 70. The Jews don't know who they are anymore. The Romans made sure of that. They literally wiped out all their records, killed anyone who knew anything, and deported the rest of them they wiped out all of their handwritten and hand-kept genealogy that they had kept for a better part of 2,000 years. So how does a Jew know that he's a Jew anymore? There's a little thing called genetics. I don't know if you've noticed that. And they had a group out of Ethiopia in recent years, the past 10 or 15 years. I can't remember how much, far, far back, not far. In Ethiopia, that had been claiming for hundreds and hundreds of years that they were Jewish. You look at them, they look African. They lived in Ethiopia. They look like Africans. They look like all the other Africans, right? How can, why is this group claiming to be Jewish and these other groups aren't? How, how can we know the difference? Well, now that we have genetics, they've also, they have uh, isolated particular genomes in, in all of us, but in particular in the Jewish people. And, and uh, at that time, they had isolated the genome that, that was unique to the Levitical Jews, of, descended from Levi. Well, these Africans are claiming to be not just Jews, but Levitical Jews. They tested them. Guess what they found out? Oh boy, they're not just Jewish, they're Levitical Jews. And you go to Israel now and you see all these Africans walking around thinking, what are the Africans doing there? Well, what are the Anglos doing there? Well, I don't know about the Anglos, but these Africans have got a right to this land, and they got a genetic right to this land. So how's God going to handle the fact that the Jews have lost their genealogies? It's not a problem. Uh, not a problem. So anyway, Matthew, though, when you're going to address a Jew about the fact that you've got a person who wants to be king, they're not going to talk to you unless you've got a genealogy. And it better go through David, and it better go back to Abraham, and that's exactly the genealogy that you have here in Matthew. So he starts with uh, Abraham, and he descends. The first prince of Israel, call that. Starts with the first prince, Abraham. He descends through the first official king, David. And David and his descent, and the, this is the line, like I told you, Luke is the line that traces all the way down through Mary. Mary's not named. And, but the line here in the book of Matthew actually is the line, is a literal line, the bloodline through which G, uh, Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, receives, receives his heirship. So uh, these two lines are important. And so, so you say, so, so what? Now we know Jesus has two parents, and so, so what? Well, it is a so what, but it's a big so what. Here's what you need to know. I want you to pay careful attention to this. Jesus is the end of both lines. He's it. 
Not just because it's that way in Matthew, it doesn't add another name. Not because it's that way in Mar- and Luke, he doesn't add a name, but it's because that is, he is it. He has ended the line of David. How do we know that? Well, David was a king for 40 years, and then he gave his throne to Solomon. Why? Because he died. Oh, you can't blame him for that. I mean, he just woke up one morning and quit living. Passed it on, actually, Solomon became king before he died, but not long before. Solomon, of course, gave his throne to Rehoboam. Why did he do that? Because he quit breathing too. And that's the way it passes. You're a king until you die, and then you pass it on to your son, and then his son, and his son, and his son. So Jesus is the king of Israel, but he died, didn't he? Who did he leave his throne to? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Three days later, he came back, didn't he? So no one is to receive the throne. He's the end of the line of David. There are no more heirs because the final heir has come. He has both conquered death and sin, and he will reign forever on the earth. It's coming. So, so he's the end of the line of David, and that's not too academic, but the one that is, pay careful attention, is that he's the end of the line of Adam as well. You see, Adam was born the son of God, as it says there in the last verse, of, verse 38 of Luke. Adam was born sinless. Eve was created sinless. Or Adam both and Eve were created sinless, but it wasn't long until they did what they did. So everyone born to them, guess what? Are sinners. Anybody here have a perfect child? I know your grandchildren. Your grandchildren, right? But you don't live with them all the time. They're all little sinners. Didn't have to teach them to sin, did you? You don't have to teach them. They know how to lie coming out, don't they? They know how to steal. They know how to hate. They know how to do all that stuff. You've got to train them. If you've got a child that's doing well, you had to train them, right? Knock them in the head a lot, actually. Took a lot for me. Don't hit them in the head. But it did work for me, I will tell you that. <laughs> but, so, so Adam gives, and Eve gives birth to sinners, right? All of them are sinners. Your kids are sinners. You were sinners. Where'd they get it from? They got it from you. And you got it from your dad, and they got it from their dad, and it passed all the way down. Adam gives birth to sinners. Jesus comes in the line of Adam, listen, but is no sinner. So now the descendants of Adam have congealed in the person and work of Jesus who's put an end to sin. He not only did not sin, but he also paid for all the Adam sinners like you and me out there, both past and present and future, right? The infinite God dying for a seemingly infinite number of sins and sinners. That's what Jesus came to do. He put an end to the line of Adam for all who believe. Because as we come to Christ in faith in him, he creates a new line of descendants, by the way, you have to be born into this line. Did you not know that? Look, look. Jesus answered and said to him, truly I, I say to you, unless you, one is born again. You're only born once. Physically you're born to Adam. All, that, all those people are going to hell. You're only born once. You're going to die twice. The second death is, is, is not, a, not, a, not a pretty thing for sure. But born twice, only die once, Right? Unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You need to take him very seriously on that. He's not messing around. This is not some religious thing. This is the coming to a Savior who births you into a kingdom. And it is the only time you become the children of God. Watch. But as many as received him, you see, they've got to do that. That's on you. I can't make you do that. It doesn't, you don't, doesn't happen to you by coming to church. You have to have an encounter with the Savior. Have you done that? To as many as received him, you've got to do that. He gave the right to become the children of God. That's how you get in. Even to those who believed in his name, who were born, pay careful attention, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor the will of man, but if you will, but of God, born of God. It is a genealogy. It's a lineage. Jesus is birthing, listen, sinless heirs, because he's taking the sin. I know, well, I'm a sinner too, but no, Jesus is taking the sin. So, so yeah, these are so what's, but man, they're big so what's. The end of David, the end of Adam for all who believe. And so there's the macro, and let's back up now and let's get to the, the, the that was the macro, this is the micro, the magnificent micro, as I said there in your notes, and I'm just saying that because that's the way I feel, but I'm the one up here talking, so. <laughs> the word of God, listen, listen, no kidding. The word of God is the only text that can understand, that can undergo the micro. You cannot put another text like this, holy text, quote unquote, sacred text, under the microscope. Because they fall apart. In the macro, they seem similar, and there's a reason for that. For instance, some of the most popular texts that we know of today that fall under the sacred text are the Book of Mormon and the Book of uh, Koran. You know that both of those guys, the reason why they look legitimate to a certain degree is because they both sat down with the Bible and copied a bunch of stuff. They're just a couple of, listen, demonically led, knuckle-headed men. That's all they ever were. And the way you know that, listen, is pull out their book and put it under the microscope. They're contradictive. They make an assumption here, and they, they disconclude it over here, and they start a line of thought here, and they do it over there, and they can't keep it together better than, any better than you and I could. But you go to the Scriptures, and you don't find that. In fact, the, the tighter the microscope gets, the more your mouth's going to fly open. And I know people say, well, there's, there's inconsistencies and there's um, contradiction in the scriptures. And here's, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of that question. I'm tired of that statement. And here's, so here's my statement back to it. Prove it! That's my statement. <laughs> Do it! We've had this thing for 2,000 years and no one's yet come up with legitimate inconsistency in it. And there's up, there's yahoos out there saying that there's inconsistencies. And I'll tell you where the inconsistencies are. It's between their ears. <laughs> Nowhere else. It's not in the text of Scripture. There have been some very wise men and women who have gone over this thing with a tine tooth comb, and you're going to see what little I am capable of just, just today, how incredibly precise the text of the Word of God is. It's not like anything else. There is no comparison. Here's an example. A seeming contradiction is, I guess, demonstrated by the question of who's Joseph's daddy? You got your Bibles right. You're in Luke. Take a look at verse uh, 23. Put your finger on it. When Jesus began his ministry, right? Jesus himself was uh, 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. It says there who was the son of Eli. Now, that's a seeming problem, especially when you've got this saying over here in Matthew that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was Jesus, to whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So which one was it? Was Jacob his dad of Joseph? Or was Eli his dad? And here's an answer that's going to bother, bother some people. But here's the answer. They both were. That's, that's strange to you, right? How is that possible, Pastor Bill? Well, it's possible because we run the same show today. One was biological. One was legal. How many of you have daughters? Daughters. Married, married daughters? So you have a son in law? How many of you like him? I'm not. Don't answer that. <laughs> Legally, he is your son, though, because they have a marriage document in the court system of our nation. You leave something to your daughter, he has legal right to at least half of it if they break up, if they've been together a certain number of years. Of course, there's 
community property and all the other craziness that's all out there. You know all that, right? But it is a legal issue. It was even more so in this, this world. In this world, like for instance, when a Mary marries a Joseph, and if uh, her dad, Eli, over here had no sons quite often, they would literally adopt the son-in-law so that he was just, he was even more so. So what you have here is you have a, Joseph has two fathers. One is a biological father. There he is. And the other one is a legal father right there in verse 23. He did have two fathers. It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. That's why they ran it. So, so, but these lines have diverged, both Mary's and Joseph's lines, way back there in David. So run your finger down to verse 32, you see? Verse 32, we've already read it. It says, And the son of Jesse, who was the son of Jesse, uh, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of, well, I missed it, I'm sorry, verse 31. The son of Malia, the son of Menah, the son of uh, Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So David is, of course, David the king, he had a son named Nathan. He's the ancestor of Mary. And watch what this says. This other genealogy says David had a son named Solomon through Bathsheba. And he's the heir. So this is where these two diverge. They take off under the two sons of, of David. In this case, both David and Bathsheba. They both had, they had three sons together. The first son was conceived in adultery. Remember? It's ugly. That son did not live because the judgment of God fell on David in particular, and the son died in his infancy. And, and then, of course, uh, that is not to uh, exclude the fact that they continue to be married, and their next son that was born to them was Solomon. Their third son, they only had three, was this Nathan. It's through Nathan comes the lineage, the physical lineage, of Mary ultimately coming to Jesus, Okay. This is the legal side that goes down through Joseph. Now, Joseph is the legal father of Jesus and gives Jesus, by the way, the legal right to the throne. You could have an adopted son, which is effectively what Jesus was for Joseph, and it is. And he has a legal right to the Jews. And I'm speaking to you like you're a bunch of Jews, and that's going to mean a ton of things to you. It might not mean a, to them. It's not going to mean a lot to you, maybe. But, but I'm just telling you it needs to because he's got a right to that throne. So, so uh, here, here's the question, though. So David and Bathsheba have an adulterous relationship, and they get married afterwards, and, you know, there was a lot of problems. And, and not to mention the fact that David, when Bathsheba comes up pregnant, what does he do? He does the right thing, and he gets in front of everybody and says, you know what, we're real sinners here, and I'm really sorry, and it was actually on me because she's a woman, and I'm a king, and I can pull any strings I want to, and that's actually how it went down. No, he did not. What did he do? Because he did his other, the other thing he shouldn't have done, which is because he was king, he gets it set up where her actual husband gets killed. And so, and that mark is written in the scriptures for all, all posterity, is it not? We're all familiar with their sins. Here's my question. What are sinners like that doing in the genealogy of Jesus? Isn't this a righteous line? Think again. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question that's sort of, that will answer the question for you, or at least help you answer the question, helps us. Um, are you in the genealogy of Jesus? Are you in there? Right? Because the Son of God came and died and he ended the line of Adam for all those who place faith in him and he births them again into a new life which is now the children of God and that line is sinless because the sinless one has paid for their sins, right? How did you get in that genealogy? Because you were a good little girl? Because you were a great boy? God had to save you? Isn't that right? No, it's not. So before we start pointing fingers at sinners, and there's some, you need to understand this whole line is nothing but sinners. And David's, of course, a marked version of that, but boy, 
you're going to start you're going to start getting upset with sinners you better be careful with that for sure how they get in the line of jesus by grace the same way you're in same way so look down at verse 33 running against the clock here look down at verse 33 we find an even greater i would submit to you problem and seeming inconsistency Verse 33 gives us a name here that stand, is another standout as far as trouble in the distant past. It says, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admin. I love that name. I don't know, Admin. Sounds like he's supposed to be in some kind of business somewhere. <laughs> the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez. If you're from the South Texas, Pettis. That's actually the better way to pronounce it. That is correct Hebrew, Pettis. Pettis, so what's, what's this Mexican doing in Jesus' lineage? Well, he's not Mexican, okay? Neither is the name Pettis Mexican. It was adopted by Mexicans because the Mexicans were, Mexico was started by Spain, and Spain was ruled by the Arabs, who are Middle Easterners, for 500 years. And they, 500 years, you've got some inbreeding going on, and so the name Pettis, which is Middle Eastern names, makes its way into the Latin American countries, and so, but it's actually a biblical name. Here you have it. It's super old. Now, th it's not a bad name. Uh, nothing on this guy other than his name brings up some, a problem. And here's the problem. The problem is, is that he was illegitimately conceived. And that's an issue with genealogies, especially if you're in the line of an heir to a promised land or in the line of a king to the ultimate throne of Israel and over the whole world. That is a big problem because if you... And we have illegitimacy, right? We have people born out of wedlock, and there's, there's a lot of that happening. But back then, it wasn't a big issue until, unless you had this kind of thing going on, which is, listen to what God says. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, no, it doesn't stop there, thank goodness. Even to the 10th generation shall, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So we got to, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. So now we got a hiccup in the line here. So what do we do? Well, we got to start, we got to do a little math. Uh, because we know that Perez or Pettis becomes the ancestor of David, who does come into the assembly of the Lord as king. So did God do an end run, or did God just simply set it? Does God just, he makes rules for us, and he himself doesn't have to abide by them. Watch. So starting with Pettis, put your finger on it, verse 33, got it? Pettis is the first generation. How many generations does it say? You've got to have ten. Pettis, number one. Hezron, number two. Ram, number three. Admin, number four. Amenadab, number five. Nishan, number six. Salmon, number seven. Boaz, number eight. Obed, number nine. Jesse, number ten. Who's the next one? David. David. So God didn't. See, this, this is a precise text. This isn't Joseph Smith smoking weed in the middle of somewhere writing. I'm not kidding. He was high on something. He had to have been. Right in the Book of Mormon, okay? This is a precise text inspired by something above the capabilities. And again, what is Luke drawing from? Luke is not, this is not a contrived text. He's just simply drawing from the, the original records of the Jews. That's the way it is. He didn't add names here. It just works out that way because God is the one who's working it, all right? So, so in speaking of precision, there's another massive problem of genealogy. If we go to Matthew, why don't we go ahead and turn there since we're going to be spending the rest of our time there. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, there's another seemingly massive problem with this genealogy that leads to Jesus. Matthew 1, 
and um, I'll put it on the screen for you, verses 10 and 11. It says, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Hezekiah and Manasseh were kings. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah. That's the name I want you to remember. And his brothers at the time of the Babylonian deportation. So they, got, they were super bad. Uh, Hezekiah was a pretty good guy. Manasseh was horrible. Ammon was horrible. Josiah was uh-uh-uh. And the rest of them, Jeconiah on down, were absolutely terrible people. For that reason... Jeconiah is a problem because of what God does with Jeconiah, actually his pronouncement over Jeconiah because of how disobedient he was. And we, we are informed of that in Jeremiah chapter 22. It's on the screen for you. Verse 28 through 30, it says, And this man Jeconiah, God is speaking here. Thunder rolling, right? This man Jeconiah, is this man Jeconiah a despised and shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that, it, that they had not known, Babylon? Oh, land, 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 speaking to Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. That means I don't have any children? No, it doesn't mean that. He's going to explain himself. A man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So, uh-oh. I'm thinking that when the devil heard God say this, he was just like, got him. Because, because why? Because it's through David that the king has to come. And he's now pronounced a curse over all the descendants of Jeconiah. And so, yeah, it came through David, but it got down to Jeconiah, and it's whoever comes out from Jeconiah is going to be the king, but God's already said he can't. So that's bad. Unless you know what we know, which is that Jesus receives no, it's a blood curse. He receives no blood from this line. Because why? Because he's the ancestor, Jeconiah, of Joseph, who, by the way, didn't sit on the throne. He was a carpenter right in the middle of nowhere. And, and poor for that matter, because that's what happened in the line of David because of this curse. But Jesus receives no blood from him. Who's he received blood from? Another line of David, by the way, way back there. They diverge with Solomon and Nathan, right? The line of Nathan, through whom comes Mary, who becomes the physical heir of Jesus. So, incredibly important because when you see these maneuvering that's going on here, and this is also another reason why Jesus had to be virgin born among many others, because a sin nature, this is inherited from the Father. Who was Jesus' father? So you see, he's not like you. Adam's your father. You're getting the sin. Jesus didn't have Adam as a father. So, so, so the micro goes further than this, even down to semantics, and here's something you can look down there, but it's verse 17 of Matthew uh, there, this, is, this is unlike Luke's. This is a contrived genealogy in the sense that Luke has left names, I'm sorry, Matthew has left names out intentionally. So, first of all, his, the way he's organized it is here in front of you. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And hear me carefully, not necessarily. I'm not saying, calling him a liar, but I'm going to explain why I'm saying what I'm saying, so hold on. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, not necessarily. And from the deport, deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations, not necessarily. Why am I saying that? Because this is, this is a contracted genealogy. Or I should say, yeah, contracted. So we have contractions in our language, don't you? We say cannot, or we say can't. It's easier to write can't. We just drop two letters and put an apostrophe, right? So when I say can't, you understand I'm saying cannot, and you don't say, Pastor Bill, you lost two letters. Because it's an agreed upon way of doing things. We just shorten our language that way. And all languages are sort of like that. We sort of, we contract them. Well, they had an agreed upon way to contract genealogies. In other words, it was permissible. 
Because see, again, genealogies are so incredibly important, it is sort of like your passport or your, your uh, uh, social security number. When you walked into a place and said, I have a right to live here, and the Jews are going to say, what's your genealogy? And you got a name so-and-so, we got 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 so-and-so. They would contract them so you wouldn't have to name 97 people. This is a contracted genealogy. He's intentionally left about 14 or 18 people out. And he put them in these codified groups of 14 apiece because it's easier to memorize and it's an accepted way to do things among the Jews. So are you cool with that? So I'm not saying Matthew's not trying to pull any wool over the eyes unless, of course, you're a Gentile like me and you. And we don't know if they did that kind of stuff by permission. So it is a contracted genealogy. He has left names out, and uh, I'm sure he puts them into courses of 14 because 14 is a, is, a, is a multiple of seven, and seven, of course, is a really cool number in the Bible. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's why he did it. He doesn't say it, but I'm pretty sure it, it, because it was cute and he could memorize it that way, okay? He's just a guy just like us. But what, jo what I would suggest to you Matthew did not know was the amazing level of sevens that are within the genealogy, which by the way, he did not have liberality to choose names out of the air. He had to, he had to go back to the Chronicles and pull legitimate names that had been heirs. This one begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. He drops a few names just to get them down to 14, 14, 14. But he's not allowed to contract them or change anything else. And so I want to demonstrate to you what actually is happening in this genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew by giving you an assignment. Are you ready? This is pass-fail. Ready? I want you to write a paper. Here's the paper. <laughs> I want you, it's going to be short. You'll love it. I want you to make up a genealogy. And it can be contrived, any name you want. doesn't have to refer to anyone. doesn't have to be legitimate people. Pick a name, all right? But whatever genealogy you, you contrive has to be, the names have to be a multiple of seven names. So it's either seven names or 14 names or 21 names or 28 names or 49 names or 70 names or 140 names. You follow me? So if, if you're like me, I'm going with seven names. I can come up with those pretty fast. So pass or fail? You're going to pass? Pass? Okay. Easy. Done. So you turn in your paper. I look on it. There are seven names I can add. You know, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now I turn the paper back to you, and here's your second assignment. I want you to take, I want you to make another genealogy. Here's the genealogy. It has to not only have the, the names have to be a multiple of seven, so do the letters. So that's harder. So I can have seven names, 21 letters, or 48 letters, or I'm sorry, 42 letters, or 48, yeah. I don't know. That's not, I don't even know my multiplication table. 49 letters. So you follow me? Think you can do it. So it's going to be harder. So it's not like I've got to count words, I've also got to count letters, so I'm not allowed to pick just any names now. I've got to pick certain names that a total adds up to some multiple of seven. Think you can do it. So you turn it in, you get an A, and so now I turn it back to you and I say the assignment for this week is that not only do I want you to write a new genealogy of, and the names have to be divisible or multiple of seven, the letters have to be a multiple of seven, and the vowels have to be a multiple of seven, A, E, I, O, and U. They have to be used a multiple of seven times, seven times, 21 times, 28 times, 49 times, 140 times, think you can do it. Starting to get complicated, isn't it? So I figured you've got an A on three papers and I wouldn't do any more if I was you. <laughs> I'm out, you know. You're entering a level, you know, now that you're asking for words and letters and vowels to be multiple of seven, you're in a, 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 you're in a level of compute, computation. You're going to have to have a computer to do it. 
Because your mind, you're going to blow, it's going to blow your mind. You don't have enough time. It's going to take you a long time. And, and, then, and then the few of you that actually get it done, I turn the paper back to you and I say, now this week I want you to do a, uh, a genealogy that the names are a multiple of seven, the, the letters are a multiple of seven, the vowels are number seven, and the consonants are a multiple of seven. Now, what do we got? You better have a computer or you're not going to get anywhere with it. So why am I doing this to you? Because what I'm doing to you is I'm demonstrating you exactly what the Matthew genealogy does. In fact, way past this. Now, don't start counting letters in your, in your English because it doesn't work in English. It works in the original Greek. The original Greek that, you, that Matthew writes, it's not contrived. He can't pick names. I've told you to pick any name you want to. Matthew doesn't have that luxury. He has to go to the Old Testament. He has to pull the names out in the order that he finds them and in the spelling of the way that he finds them. But guess what he does when he puts them together in the New Testament? Or they were already put together in the Old Testament. You find out not only are the words divisible of seven, but so are the letters, so are the vowels, so are the consonants. Hold, hold on to your coffee. The words that begin with a vowel are divisible by seven. The words that begin with a consonant are also divisible by seven. The words that occur more than once are also divisible by seven. The words that occur in more than one form are divisible by seven. It's verifiable. You don't have to believe me. You can verify it yourself. The number of words that occur in only one form are divisible by seven. The number of nouns are divisible by seven. Seven words only are not nouns. It's crazy. The number of names in the genealogy, of course, are divisible by 742. Besides those names, there are only seven other kinds of nouns. The number of male names are divisible by seven. The number of generations are divisible by seven. The number of times the definite article, T-H-E, the, is exactly divisible by seven. The number of forms of the definite article is also divisible by seven. The first 11 verses in your Bible, taken word for word and letter by letter, give us 49 Greek vocabulary words in addition to the names. So 49 is, of course, Seven times seven. Of those 49, listen, 28 began with a vowel, 21 began with a consonant. It's crazy. I'm telling you. Of those 49, seven times 38, uh, 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 of, of the letters of those 49, it's seven times 38. Of the vowels, it's seven times 20. The number of that 49 that are consonants, seven times 18. The number of that 49 uh, that, that occur in more than one form is exactly seven times five. The number of those words that occur in only one form is seven times two. Not done. The, only, the, the number of that 49 that occur in only one form is 7 times 6. And of that 49 that occur in more than one form is exactly 7. The number of that 49 of these that are, that are nouns is 7 times 6. The number of these that are proper nouns is 7 times 5. Of those proper nouns, 7 times 4 are male. Of those three, only three females are named in this genealogy. They have a total of 14 letters in their names. The number of compound nouns is exactly 7. The number of letters within these compound nouns is exactly 49. Only one city is mentioned in the genealogy. It's Babylon. Guess how many letters it has? Twelve. No, I'm just kidding. It's seven. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's seven. You could have guessed it, right? So, so, of course, the names are divisible by seven, but I've already told you that, that, that this is a contracted genealogy. Matthew has intentionally left out names. So if we go back into the old records, which is Chronicles, and we pull these names out that he's left out because they're even less significant than the names that you can't read. Guess how many we wind up with? We add them to the 42. So what do you think the total number is? It's going to be something really cute, don't you think? If you were betting, would you bet on 77, 70, 49? What would you bet on? We'll start our bids at $100. <laughs> 
No, you take, the, you take the names that Matthew left out and you add them to this contracted genealogy of only 42 and, get, and the number you wind up is amazingly 66. Exactly 66. So it's sort of deflating, isn't it? So isn't six the number of man? Isn't triple six kind of a bad number? Double six means what? Just means God's doubling down on the fact that this king who has such an incredibly precise genealogy was also a man, wasn't he? So when we leave Matthew, we were started off in Luke. So what about Luke? We go back to Luke, and uh, again, easily verifiable. So Luke has how many names in his genealogy? So you expect six, because he's writing about Jesus being a man. So we expect the 66 would be over here with Luke, and that 70-something would be over here, or some, some cool, sweet number would be over here with, with Matthew, but it's not that, say, not that way. Matthew has 66 names in his genealogy when you add all the ones that have been left out. Luke has exactly 77. Wow. Yeah, for heaven's sakes. For all, for the, and this is a part of the Bible that none of you read. Am I wrong about that? Don't you get to that place and say, well, no, 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 no. Right? <laughs> right? Because it's hard to read and they don't make a lot of sense to us. And there's just a few names we connect with because of our familiarity with the Old Testament. And um, I even did that this morning. We didn't read all of it. But notice even in the stuff that we consider unimportant, how precise God is. Precise. You think you're going to give Matthew the credit for writing a genealogy like that? Please. I think he was a smart guy, but he didn't have a computer, and you couldn't have done this with a computer, I don't think. I think this would be impossible. This is a contrived genealogy, but it's contrived from up there. It is. So, so if he's that serious about something we would consider minuscule, like the, the names of these Jewish, Jewish heirs proving that he's the king, and I've already accepted him as the king, why do I need to pay attention to anything else? Because it's teaching me a lesson about the precision of the text. So he says what he means, and he means exactly what he says to the letter. You believe in verbal inspiration of the scriptures? I th I'm going to one-up you. I believe in the letter inspiration of the scriptures because it's demonstrated. Jesus held the same position. And so you think he's serious when he says you must be born again? Oh, boy. You think he's serious when he gives these commands? He's not messing around, guys. This is serious stuff. This is eternity. So the eternal God has communicated to us in a way that demonstrates that his thumbprint is on it because only he could pull something like this off. And it doesn't stop there. And I would recommend to you a book called The Hepatic Structure of the, of the New Testament, and it will blow your mind. But, but we are going to stop there because that's where we are. So I want to ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want us to think and contemplate on what God has said to us. Where, where are you with the Bible? Where are you? See, we, we say it's important to us, but are we spending time in it? We say it matters and is authoritative, but are we memorizing it? Are we allowing it to wash over us so that it can change us? We say we believe it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And, and uh, here we've seen how fine, how fine that edge is. And yet we're not allowing it to do heart surgery on us. We really need we really need to change. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fineness and precision of your word, that it can, it can endure the microscope, it can go beyond the microscope. And Lord, in fact, it is the microscope on our lives, and we want you to search us out. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and patience 
and grace that as you do heart surgery on us, you only bring up what we can endure and what the next step is, and you don't lay out the whole thing for us because you know we couldn't take it. So Lord, I pray that as we look at this step where it says your word needs to be honored and it needs to be respected and it needs to be understood for what it is, Lord, that we would take that step today. Thank you for revealing this to us. Thank you for the, the power of it, and more importantly, the message of it that teaches us about your son. We pray all these things in the name of, powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.